0: Let me read this passage of scripture with you. It says, Matthew 26, we are on our journey, like Mark said, towards the cross. We've been in Matthew for two and a half years. We'll be done at Easter. Uh, And so that's coming up. So we are finishing this third to last chapter in Matthew. And I would love to read for you this morning, verses 57 through the end of the chapter. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, Where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two fellows, or two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. And then he went out to the gateway, where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. And this is the word of the Lord. There's passion, and then there's obsession. Passion can be a good thing. You're passionate about this girl in high school. You really want to date her. Obsession can be a bad thing. You're obsessed with this girl and you sit outside her house and watch it. (laughs) My boys are passionate about the Warriors, even lately. They wear their warriors gear. Like They don't normally wear the officially strange getup. Normally they all wear these warriors track jackets and their warriors hat. And they're, they're passionate about the warriors. They're not obsessed with the warriors. Like the person who sits outside Steph Curry's house and waits for him to come out. and He's taking photos from the bushes. That person is obsessed, right? Passion is glorious. Obsession is disturbing. And a lot of us have a lot of different passions in our lives, and most of us would say that we aren't obsessed. People who are obsessed probably also wouldn't say that they're obsessed. I think for most of us, we rarely do step into that place of obsession in our life where we're just so fervently pursuing something, we've thrown all health and healthy boundaries out the window. We have passions. But I think a lot of us in our lives sometimes get to the point where our passions move towards obsession and we become consumed. You ever been consumed with something? You finally get the guts to ask that girl out and you're not going to go sit outside her house and wait for her or anything, right? But you're passionate about her, so you text her and you're waiting the response. You're not thinking about anything else in the world. You're just staring at your phone, right? That little, like bubble that comes up when someone's typing pops up, like, oh, but it disappears. No, no, no. It goes back. Like, what is she writing? What is she writing? Right? Like, in that moment, you are consumed. Sometimes we get consumed with good things. You've got someone in your life who needs a caregiver, and you've signed up to be that caregiver, and so you are absolutely consumed with caring for that loved one. Maybe it's end-of-life care issues. Maybe they've gone through some medical trauma. Maybe they're going through recovery and they've fallen into addiction. And as the caregiver, you become consumed with keeping this person's life together. Your whole life revolves around it. You forget to eat half the time. You're on the phone with doctors all the time or with the rehab clinic all the time. You're filling prescriptions all the time. You're driving them around all the time. You sit at their dining table all day long and there's piles of paper and a phone. And they sit in the other room and your whole life has become consumed with the season of caregiving, that's a good thing, but it's a consuming thing. Some of you are there right now. Some of you are wrestling with a season of life that you're in. Maybe God's calling you to do something new. Quit your job, take this job, whatever it is. And it's just all you think about. It's all you can dream about. It's all you can talk about. Right? When you talk to your friends on the phone, they say, hey, do you want to talk about something else now? Because right? you're consumed with this issue, right? And half the time, we don't know we're doing it until someone looks back at us and says, hey, do you know that you've been talking for weeks about this one thing and you never talk about anything else? I'm just passionate. Okay. Maybe you're consumed. when I read the account of the Apostle Peter in Matthew 26 and 27 and and the other gospel accounts as well, as we see Jesus coming towards the end of his earthly ministry, we start to pick up on the fact that Peter has become consumed with the death of Jesus. At first, it kind of just pops out of him at random times. You know, they're coming down the Mount of Transfiguration and and Jesus starts to explain to his disciples, I'm not going to be with you much longer. I'm going to be handed over and put to death. And, and Peter blurts out, no, Lord, we'll never let that happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Remember that passage? You don't have in your mind the things of God. As Jesus gets closer to his death, and Peter's trying to wrestle with what that means for him, he starts making these bold claims. Jesus, I'm never going to fall away. Jesus, I'll follow you to the end. Jesus, if everyone else dishonors you, I never will. Jesus, I'm going to be with you until the very end. he seems obsessed, but maybe he's just consumed with something. Is he trying to stop the death of Jesus? Is he trying to prove himself faithful to Jesus? Is he in disbelief about the fact that Jesus' earthly life is almost over? We don't know what's going on inside Peter, but we can see what's coming out of Peter, which is vocalizing over and over again in these different ways. Jesus, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to try to stop it. I don't want this to happen. He's consumed with this idea that Jesus is about to die. I mean, can you blame him? Have you had a best friend or a close friend or a leader or a mentor who said, hey, just so you know, I'm about to die at the hands of unjust men through an unjust trial? What would you think? Would you try to stop it? Would you pledge your allegiance? Would you become consumed at the thought that the one that you were hoping would be the Messiah is saying that he's going to die? Wouldn't that break your mind a little bit? Break your heart? A little bit. So at the Last Supper, when Jesus says to all the disciples, including Peter, I tell you the truth, all of you are going to betray me. Peter says, surely not, Lord. Even if all of these guys fall away, I never will. And we always read that and we think it's a prideful statement that Peter's making. He just thinks he's so good, even if everyone else falls away. He's an all-star. He's a rock star, right? He's the man. He loves himself. Maybe there's pride there. But I know in my life, when I've been consumed with something, and something's eating away at me, and I've had to wrestle with how I'm going to respond to it or act in accordance with it, I often get to this place that I think Peter is at in this passage, where I set my mind to something, and I put my foot down, like maybe probably not literally, but in my heart and in my mind, I set my jaw, and I say, this is going to happen. Right? Some of you guys have experienced that in your marriage, right? Your marriage kind of gets on the rocks, and you start thinking, maybe it's time to leave, right? And then you say, no. I'm not going anywhere, right? And there's something that changes in you when you get resolute and you say, I don't care what you do, I'm going to be faithful. I don't care what you say, I'm not leaving. And it's not just words, and it's not prideful. You've just decided you're all in, and you're not going anywhere. Maybe Peter had pride, but maybe this is a statement of all inness. Jesus, you don't understand. I, I don't care what they do to me. I'm, I'm in. They bring out the swords, I'll die on the sword. They try to run you out of town, I'll run with you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. We've made this covenant. We're in this relationship, Jesus. Even if everyone else changes their mind, my mind has been set. It's been made. I'm all in. That could be a beautiful thing. Some of you who are in a season right now of being consumed with something, whether it's good or bad or somewhere in the middle or it's complicated, right? You've decided, I'm all in. I'm with you to the end. I'm all in. I'm going to see this thing out. I'm all in. I'm too far in. I can't get out. I'm going to see it to the end. I am resolute. And so Peter says, Jesus, I am all in no matter what anyone else does, no matter what happens to you, I'm not going anywhere. You can imagine how Peter must have felt when Jesus said, Peter, I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you are going to disown me three times. I know you say you're all in, but you're going to fail too. Now, sometimes we can get consumed with the wrong thing. I was thinking this week about the story of Jonah in the Old Testament. Have you read that story before? Are you familiar with that? The prophet Jonah that God says, I am giving a calling to you. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. And Jonah apparently becomes consumed with doing everything but going to Nineveh. He gets on a boat to the other direction. When the storms rage up, he hides underneath the boat and falls asleep. When the people draw him out and say, someone's God is out to get them like they're being disobedient, Jonah says, it's me. Let me die in the depths of the sea. Just don't make me go to Nineveh, right? I'm not going. And so they throw him overboard. And a fish swallows him. And a fish swims up and spits Jonah up on the banks of Nineveh. And the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time, saying, Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. So Jonah reluctantly walks up the street to Nineveh. and starts preaching this really compelling sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. Probably more like... You got 40 days and then we'll be over there. 40 days. Right? Like, I'm doing it, God. I'm doing it. and everyone starts repenting. Everyone's getting saved. And Jonah's like, no, no, I didn't want this to happen, right? And he sees all these people repenting, and it goes up to the king, and he's in sackcloth and ashes. And Jonah's like, oh, this is what I wanted to happen. So Jonah goes up on this hill, he sits down and pouts, and he watches all these people get saved. And he's probably thinking, I wanted to see fire rain down on this city. Jonah was consumed. (laughs) Uh, But Jonah had the wrong mission. I think sometimes when we're consumed with things, one of the best questions we can ask is, are we on the right mission? Peter was consumed with stopping the death of Jesus. Or maybe Peter was consumed with showing Jesus how faithful he was. Or maybe Peter was consumed with just being there on the cross, right next to Jesus, dying side by side as brothers... Any of those, it's the wrong mission. We get the privilege of looking at the story from like the 10,000 foot view. And we know about the resurrection. We know about the plan of crucifixion. We know about the forgiveness of sins. We know everything, right? And so we can look back and say, silly Peter. Peter was consumed with a mission. It just wasn't the right one. And Some of you right now are really nervous that I'm telling you that your mission is the wrong one. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Maybe you're in a season right now where you are so consumed with something that's good or maybe it's medium or maybe it's confusing and the rest of your life is falling apart. Right? Maybe you're caring for someone or you're on this mission you feel like God has given you, right? Or, or you're loving your kids, some, something that just consumes every moment of your life and you call it passion, but the people around you look at you and they say, I think your passion is getting a little unhealthy. When was the last time you ate? I don't need to eat, I'm on a mission, right? Well, you don't leave the house anymore. You only talk about one thing. And sometimes you think, you know what? Maybe they're right. Maybe I'm too into this thing. Maybe I'm trying to take the reins too hard. But on the other hand, what else are you supposed to do? This thing's consuming you for a reason. You feel like it's important. You can't just walk away and dishonor this person or dishonor this process or dishonor all the people who got you to this place. So you feel like it's your lot in life to be consumed right now. Peter's consumed, and he doesn't know which way's up. And I feel for him. You know, Peter's kind of like the guy in the Bible that my heart goes out to most. I always hear people preach about Peter, and they call him hot-headed Peter, prideful Peter. And I was like, hey, come on, man. If Peter was here, would he be like, hey, that's not fair, right? Peter loved Jesus. Peter wanted so badly to do the right thing. Peter wanted to follow Jesus to the end. He he knew his life should be about the mission of God, and so he was all in. He was consumed with a good thing. He just didn't know what the good thing was anymore. And Jesus tells Peter, We're moving into a season where you're going to need to have a sword with you. And Peter's like, we've got two swords. Jesus says, that's enough. So he's got his sword. They're in the garden. Jesus says, stay here and keep watch while I pray. So Peter's like, okay, I'm going to keep watch. No one's getting my Jesus, right? And then he falls asleep for a while, right? Falls, oh, no, I got this. I'm all in, right? I'm going to keep watch, right? And then these guards come up. And Peter's like, I got him, Jesus. And he goes and tries to cut the guy's head off. And he misses. And he cuts the guy's ear off. And then... Jesus picks up the guy's ear and puts it back on his head and says, No, Peter. I like, what? <laughs> what am I supposed to do? And Jesus gets bound up and he gets taken away. And I'm sure Peter's thinking, Now what? And I told Jesus I would stop his death and he called me Satan. I grabbed the sword Jesus said I'd need and I tried to kill his assailants with it and he yelled at me. I told Jesus I'd be with him till the bitter end. And and he said that I'm going to deny him. I'm not doing that for sure. So Matthew tells us that (laughs) Peter just followed. And that was the last thing he said to Jesus, right? I will be with you till the end. I'll follow you all the way. And so Peter, and and we hear in John's gospel that John went to, they followed behind this, Crowd of soldiers to just try to stay close to Jesus. You can imagine Peter in that courtyard around the fire, and in one sense, it's a really like peaceful, serene setting. It's dark out, and there's soldiers there, and there's servants there, and there's government officials there, and they're all warming themselves, and doubtless people are chatting around the fire, and John's there, and Peter's there, and Jesus is in the distance. But it's got to be surreal. Have you ever been in a moment like that? Where you don't know what you're supposed to do next. Or maybe you've been caring for this person for a real long time, and now they're in the hospital, or they're on hospice, and, and you're just sitting in the other room. You don't know what you're supposed to do. Do you stop it? Do you help somehow? Do you advocate for them? You're kind of in this waiting room, and you're watching this bad thing go down, and you don't know what your role is. That's how I picture Peter around this fire. He's standing there, and we see in Matthew's gospel this glimpse that Jesus is being accused. False witnesses are coming. Jesus is just standing there silently, and Peter and John are watching this. They can see him. Luke tells us that Jesus makes eye contact with Peter in the midst of the whole thing. They're right there in this waiting room, helpless to do anything, Peter just wants to be there. If you've been consumed with something for a long time, when it all starts to fall apart, you you don't know what what to do, but you just just stay in it. I love reading through the different accounts in the Gospels of this occasion. If you've ever struggled before with whether the Bible's reliable or who wrote it, I'd encourage you this week to take some time and read through Matthew and Mark and Luke and John's accounts of this, this very scene around the fire. Because what you get to see is that these accounts are different enough from one another to remind you they have different authors with different vantage points. But they're similar enough to each other to realize that this actually happened and these guys were there. Right? John, who was there with Peter, he gives us the eyewitness details of what it was like to be John around that fire. He tells us that him and Peter went up to this courtyard and John had an inn. And so he was able to sneak into this courtyard around the fire and then sneak Peter into the room. John sent a servant girl out to get Peter. So this girl goes out and says, hey, Peter, you want to come in? And he comes in with her, and they join each other around the fire. You get that eyewitness account from John. In Mark's gospel, that many scholars believe Peter had a hand in writing with Mark, it makes Peter look like a real bad guy. You feel for him. Read Mark's gospel this week and think, man, Peter helped write this story, and you get the dirty details about how it went down, how Peter denied Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times. Luke's gospel brings the emotion into it. We hear in Luke 22 that right when Peter denies Jesus the third time, Peter makes eye contact with Jesus who's being beat up by soldiers you can imagine Luke hearing the story who wasn't around the fire and saying, wait, he looked at you? Peter's like, yeah, he looked at me right when the rooster crowed." right? Luke's like, oh, I'm definitely including that detail. That's, that's intense, right? In Matthew's account here, we have a more systematized view where Matthew is showing us that Peter's denial starts light and gets super heavy, super quick. Peter starts outside of the courtyard, and the servant girl comes to talk to him, and she says, wait, you're with Jesus, right? And Peter's got a choice to make, right? Peter's not like, oh, no, I hate Jesus Christ, right? Peter just wants to get in the room, right? And I I get it, right? Some of us have lied, too, to get in the room, right? Your best friend's hurt. You're going to the hospital. The ICU nurse says, no, immediate family only. And you said, oh, no, that's, that's my brother in there, right? Sometimes we lie to get in the room. And so we'll give Peter the first denial. Then she says, hey, hey, you're not one of them. Like, oh, no, 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 no I'm, just, I'm just one of you. Just want to go in around this fire and look at this man fellow Jesus, right? Sure, he's in the room, but then it gets, it gets rough. Looks like this same servant girl is following him around and she's getting more suspicious. So she starts poking at it. No, you're, you're from Nazareth. You're a Galilean. You're with, you're one of the disciples, right? And Peter's like, shh, keep it cool, keep it cool, right? He doesn't say that, but that's how I feel like he's feeling. And then all the eyes start to turn on Peter, right? And he takes it up a notch. He says, he swears an oath. He says, I swear to God, I don't know Jesus Christ. It's like, whoa, dude, like that's, don't do that. <laughs> it's getting heavy, man. I know you want to be in the room, but just run, dude, run. He's like, no, I, I'm, I'm going to be with him till the end, Right? And then more eyes turn on Peter. Surely you're one of them. You're a Galilean. Surely you're one of them. I can tell by your accent. You're one of those guys, right? And Peter, with all the eyes on him, calls down curses on himself. May God strike me dead if I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. That kind of stuff. (laughs) Cock-a-doodle-doo! Matthew says, that's when Peter remembers the words that Jesus said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Matthew says that when Peter hears the rooster crow, he goes outside and weeps bitterly. Some of us have gone outside and wept bitterly. And scholars aren't really sure why he did that. Did he weep because he denied Jesus? Of course. Did he weep because he was realizing that Jesus was dying? His close friend was dying and there's nothing he could do to stop it? Yes, of course. Was he crying because he realized that this whole trial was incredulous and unjust, and and, and it was all going the wrong way, and there was nothing. Of course, right? All of these things are compounding on Peter. Is he crying because he thought he could do it, but he couldn't? Yes. Is he crying because he thought he could save Jesus, and he knows he can't? Yes. Is Peter crying because he told Jesus, I'll be with you, and then he denied him? Yes. It's all crashing down. The thing that Peter's been consumed with for days, weeks, months is falling apart, and there's nothing he can do but leave the room and weep bitterly. And some of you have been there. Spent so many years pursuing this thing, and then it falls apart. So many years pursuing this person, and it falls apart. So many years devoting your life to keeping this person healthy, then they take a turn for the worst. So many years caring for your children, then they go out the door. So much time and conversation and energy and thought trying to keep this above water, but now you watch it drown and you know there's nothing you can do. And so you go outside and you weep bitterly. My heart goes out to Peter. I read this and I want to pray for him, but it was like 2,000 years ago, so it's probably too late for that moment. (laughs) My prayer for Peter, if I could pray for him, would be that while he's outside praying bitterly, In his mind, in his heart, inside his ear, he would hear the words that Jesus said right before he made his resolution to follow Jesus. Peter. Peter. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you, Peter, that your faith wouldn't fail. And when you return, strengthen the brothers. Jesus says, Peter, Satan asked to take you down. And I prayed for you that though your fire would feel like it was being quenched, that the spark would not go out, but it would start to grow again. And Peter, when that happens, when you come back, when you're done weeping bitterly, I have a new mission for you. Strengthen the brothers. When you return, when you return, when you return, devote your life to serving my church. We see if you read the book of John and and hear about Peter's restoration that that's exactly what happened. That Jesus comes and finds Peter and has that awkward conversation. And he restores Peter and says, Peter, feed my sheep, tend to my flock, care for my lambs, strengthen the brothers, return and go. I have a new mission for you. Peter had to let go of the mission that he invented for himself. Protect Jesus or die trying. And pick up the real mission that Jesus had for him. Uh, Be a pastor, be an apostle, be a servant in the church of the resurrected Jesus. For some of us today who who are consumed with something that is eating us alive, that's what consumed means, right? It's consuming us, it's eating us. There's a chance that God wants to meet with you and say, hey, you've invented a mission for yourself that I have not laid on your shoulders do this instead. Let me take that burden and do this instead. Let me take that consuming thought and give me those thoughts. Do this instead. When you return, maybe you have to weep bitterly first, but then when you return, do this instead. Jonah never got it. Jonah's up on the hill waiting for Nineveh to be Overturned, but instead they're repenting right and God is gracious to Jonah until the very end Jonah's sitting out there in the hot sun being like oh the Ninevites they're repenting and it's so hot out here right so the book of Jonah says that God provided a vine to shade Jonah while he had a pity party he's like oh that's kind of nice but I'm still mad at these Ninevites right and then it says that God provided a worm to eat the plant I I knew it, right? I knew it was too good to be true, and it's hot again, right? And then God shows up next to Jonah, and this is like my favorite interaction in the whole Bible. He says, Jonah, seeing that Jonah was pretty angry about the plant that died, Jonah, is it right to be angry about the plant? Jonah responds, It is. I'm angry enough to die. (laughs) In other words, Jonah, is it right to be angry about this? And Jonah says, yes, it is right to be angry about it because I am. Dude, that's me all the time. God, I'm I'm so fired up about this. And God says, Danny, is it right to be fired up about this? Yes, it is. How do you know? Because I'm fired up about it. Right? God tries to redirect Jonah's attention. Hey, Jonah, you're mad about a plant that's dead. Hundreds of thousands of people out there just got saved, Jonah. These people didn't know the right hand from the left, and the God of the universe just reached in and transformed their entire city. Yeah, but I'm hot out here, and I don't like those people, right? And Jonah never got it. And you come back next week, you see the next passage in Matthew 27 is Judas hangs himself. And Judas never got it. He was consumed with his guilt over turning over Jesus and he never let Jesus restore him. He never got it. And the beauty of Peter's story is that even though he was consumed, even though he was on the wrong mission, even though he was just trying his best but kept messing things up, even though all that is true, after weeping bitterly when God whispered in his ear and said, Peter, here's something new for you to do, he heard He let God restore him. He let God step into his life. He let Jesus give him a new mission. And that burden of being consumed with the wrong thing was gone. And a passion for living on the mission of Jesus was birthed in its place. As we close in prayer this morning, let's pray that God would do that for some of us. And some of us who've been living for too long under a burden of consuming something, that God would take it away and renew in us a freedom from the bondage we've been living in. he give us a new heart, maybe, a new passion, a new mission, and we'd be able to simply cling to him and watch him do the work instead of trying to control everything ourselves.